Welcome to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. Hello and welcome to the 631st edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. I am Ben and those diverse questions came from my co-host and partner in the paranormal, my dad. And this afternoon we bring you a new guest uh, with a new angle on a familiar subject. Uh, As well as uh, calls, we accept your calls. The uh, numbers are 800-449-1240, that's from anywhere in the U.S. or Canada, and 401-766-1240 locally. Also, we will monitor emails, paul at behindtheparanormal.com for emails. Thomas J. Carey, a native of Philadelphia, is a graduate of Temple University, holds a master's degree in anthropology from California State University, and has done doctoral work in anthropology at the University of Toronto. An Air Force veteran uh, who held a top-secret slash crypto clearance, Tom is now a retired Philadelphia-area businessman. He has worked extensively in the UFO field and for the past 16 years has investigated the 1947 Roswell incident. He has authored or co-authored more than 40 articles on the subject as, co- uh, as a co-author. Somebody, I don't know who wrote this. Uh, with investigator Donald R. Schmidt, has written th- uh, co-authored, I should say, three books on the incident, the latest being The Children of Roswell, the subject of our discussion this afternoon. Tom lives in Huntington Valley, Pennsylvania. So, Tom Carey, welcome to Behind the Paranormal. Nice to be with you. Am I speaking to Paul or Ben? Uh, both. <laughs> well, I'm Ben, and uh, next to me is my dad, Paul. <laughs> Don't tell him. Let's keep him guessing. Uh, yes, okay. yes, uh, or maybe nice, I'm lying. Nice, <laughs> nice to be with you today. Okay. Oh, it's great to have you. So for those who don't know about the Roswell incident, can you give us a little bit of a background? Yes. Uh, uh, just to make one little correction in your uh, intro there, I've studied the, the case uh, for 25 years. Uh, oh, well, time uh, flies when you're having fun. <laughs> yes. Uh, started in 1990, uh, oh boy, 
Now, they ended, now you have to understand, they ended World War II, the 509th Bomb Group. They dropped two atomic bombs on Japan. The group was created strictly to drop atomic bombs. The, the 509th is still in existence today with the same mission in case of war, only they're, they're now located in uh, Missouri. So it was a two-day story. It was the flying saucer. No, it wasn't. It was a weather balloon. And the story passed from the public consciousness at that point for the next 30 years until we reopened the case in 1978. And here we are today. Uh, the civilian investigation has been going on since uh, 1978. So here we are. It was a flying saucer. No, it wasn't. It was a weather balloon. All right. All right. So who were the primary witnesses and what happened to them? Well, the primary witnesses are all dead now, of course, uh, but with, I will say this, that without a rancher by the name of Mac Brazel, he ran a sheep ranch uh, near Corona, New Mexico, one morning after a severe thunder and lightning storm the night before, he was uh, out checking fence and checking his sheep, he came across a a large pasture full of this strange wreckage. And uh, the pasture was about uh, 300 feet wide by almost a mile long, a huge, huge area covered with this strange little pieces of wreckage. So he went into to Roswell a few days later to report it because friends uh, had told him that, well, if it, uh, if it sounds like something that, that came from the sky, that exploded and came from the sky, and anything that uh, came from the sky is the provenance of the Air Force. So the nearest base was in uh, Roswell. So uh, he trucked on to Roswell a few days later, reported it to the sheriff, because he wanted someone out there to clean up that stuff, because his sheep wouldn't, wouldn't cross it to, to go to water. So he reported to the sheriff. The sheriff reported it to the base, and they got out there, and the cover-up began. They 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 uh, cleaned up the place. It took a couple days. The the witnesses were all silenced, and the cover-up began at that point. Now, so without Mac Brazel, the story uh, would not have been uh, gotten to uh, civilian authorities, at least. Or to the uh, perhaps to the to the air base there we we don't know, but the next most important witness was the former base intelligence officer at Roswell at that time, and a fellow by the name he was a major then, Major Jesse Marcel, and Jesse was uh, the first military person out to the site where all this wreckage was. And uh, according to his son, Jesse Jr., his father believed at once that it was not, not of this earth. His statement was it came to earth, but it was not of this earth. And he believed to his dying day that it was a flying saucer that had crashed there. So in 1978, Jesse Sr., is uh, he's got emphysema. He doesn't know how much longer he has. And he has, he's part of a ham radio network and he started talking about this event back in 1947 where he had 
held in his hand pieces of a flying saucer. And so it went around this uh, ham radio network. Well, at that time, a UFO investigator, he's hes still with us, uh, Stanton Friedman. Oh, we don't stand very well. Yeah, he wrote, he wrote the, uh, Friedman with, the foreword for Stanton, our next book. Yes, uh, Stanton was in Louisiana. It was either Baton Rouge or uh, New Orleans, I don't know which one. But he had given it, uh, appeared on a TV station there. And at the end of the show, the, one of the producers said, well, hey, Stan, well, you know, there's this uh, fellow that lives in Houma, Louisiana, uh, who says a few years ago he held pieces of a crash-flying saucer. You ought to talk to him. Well, Stan uh, wrote down the number. It was Jesse Marcel. And before he left Louisiana, he gave Jesse a call and took his account of this Roswell incident. And uh, at that point began the civilian investigation. Stan got in touch with a uh, fellow investigator of his, uh, William Moore, and together they they investigated what they could back in the late 70s about this case. And two years later, 1980, out came the first book about this event called The Roswell Incident, 1980. I read the book. It blew me away. And I've been interested in the case ever since. But without that chain of events, you and I wouldn't—we uh, wouldn't be talking this morning. Well, there we go. So, does this sort of um, harassment continue with their children? I know—I know you sort of—you sort of mentioned that, but how has it continued? Yeah. Well, how well, are the original people harassed? Oh yeah. How did, how did, how were the original people harassed? I should say. Well, the original there were three groups that had to be silenced. The first one was because the story was in the press and the phone calls were coming from all over the world to Roswell. What's going on? What else can we, what can we learn? What can we learn? Tell us more. Tell us more. They had to kill the story in the press first, which is what they did with that uh, weather balloon press conference. The weather balloon press conference. And you have to understand, back in 1947, our military was held in the highest esteem that it's probably ever been. We It was post-World War II. Uh, our military had vanquished the, the Axis, uh, Germany, Japan, and uh, Italy. So the public had held them in the highest esteem that they ever had, and they tended to believe whatever they said. So when they said it was a, a weather balloon, well, oh, that's good enough for me. End of story. The story died in the press that day. The second group to be silenced, was the military, the, the military uh, officers and enlisted men who were involved in the recovery. And they were silenced with two ways. Number one, they uh, key people were, were uh, reassigned to bases around the world, just, uh, you know, up in Alaska, uh, uh, over in Europe, out in the Philippines. They dispersed them. But the other ones, the, the multitude of uh, enlisted men who were out there picking up the pieces, they were threatened if they wanted, if they continued to talk about what had taken place, they were going to find out more about it in Leavenworth Prison, in Leavenworth, Kansas, the federal prison in Leavenworth. So that shut them up right away. 
threats of uh, imprisonment. Well, the third group that had to be silenced was the most difficult, and those were the civilians in Roswell and the ranchers outside of Roswell who either had gotten to the crash site before the military and, and had seen everything, including the little bodies, they had to be somehow silenced. And uh, as you know, the military has no jurisdiction over civilians except in time of war or when martial law has been declared in, in the case of an extreme emergency. And neither of those situations had existed at, at Roswell. So how to silence them? Well, the... Uh, the Hispanic, uh, the, the Hispanics in and around Roswell uh, at the outlying ranches and in town, the sheriff, the sheriff of Chavez County, George Wilcox, whose office was in Roswell, he was fluent in Spanish. So they used the sheriff to go around to especially the Hispanics who either knew about the bodies or had seen them themselves. The, the bodies the from issued, the, the crash. Bodies from the crash, yes. Okay. The three feet tall, with three and a half feet tall, with big heads and large eyes that wouldn't close. They just kept staring out. Okay. He, uh, they dispatched him around, and he issued the death threats. If you talk about this, we are going to not only kill you, but kill your children and the rest of your family. Well, that's you know, and that's coming from the sheriff, and uh, so. When they heard that, they tended to keep quiet. The uh, the others, they used uh, military officers, which was against the law because there was no direct, uh, you know, there was no direct uh, control that the military had held over the civilians. They used military officers to threaten uh, the non-Hispanic population, uh, the ranchers and the Roswellians, who knew about the bodies especially, because you can explain away strange wreckage. Oh, that's uh, one of our new uh, fighter jets had crashed, and we have this new alloy that we use, blah, blah, blah. They could explain that away. But the little bodies with the big heads and st large staring eyes, they couldn't explain those away. So they used military officers to issue the death threats. And even a death threat went to the sheriff. Because he knew the whole story, uh, the, the last uh, piece of the puzzle for them was to silence the sheriff. And they went around to the sheriff's office. They treated him like a thug. They treated him like a criminal. Shoved him up against the wall. If you if you say anything about this, we will kill you, your wife, your children, and uh, any grandchildren. And that's how they silenced the the three groups that had to be silenced, and it held for 30 years. It held for 30 years. How did you find out about this? About the uh, threats? Yes. Now, I've heard the story from, you know, a number of sources, but uh, how did you how did you research this for your book? I mean, so, you know, what I'm well, asking is presumably you heard this right from the horse's mouth, you know, the, the children yes. of the, the people to yes. whom it had happened. Yes, as we were researching the, uh, of course, when we started out researching the case, we, we wanted to find out, well, was there a crash? Where did it occur? And who was involved? Those were the, you know, the big things. Who was involved? Where, where did it uh, crash and when and things like that? But as we went along, we started to interview 
the children, the children mostly spoke of this, of how the, the threats really affected their parents and themselves. And we're thinking, oh, my goodness, they, they, really, they really did a number here because we weren't aware of the, the severe threats, the ones of death. Uh, you could, you could, you could say, okay, uh, it's a national security issue, uh, appeals to patriotism, which they also used. But in those cases where they felt, oh, oh, this uh, this person needs a little extra special attention, those are the ones that got the death threats. But they, the initial, initially, they appealed to uh, uh, patriotism and nas- uh, the need for national security. But uh, some of the children we started talking to, and even the grandchildren, they said, oh, my goodness, uh, it was more than that. Uh, they threatened my parents or grandparents with death. Uh, and uh, we, the more we talked with the children and grandchildren, the more we heard that same tune, that uh, they really, the Air Force uh, really got thuggish. And that uh, the, the the threats and the reminders, let's call them reminders, uh, they kept in place for decades after the event. Uh, people in the, people in dark suits would visit various participants, and the children would tell us that yes, I remember that uh, every couple uh, every every couple of years, uh, my father would get a visit from a couple of guys in dark suits, and they would sit in the living room. And uh, I don't know what exactly what they were talking about, but, but when it was over, all my father said was that, well, it had to do with uh, something that happened a long time ago. And, uh, well, they knew their father was at Roswell, so they put two and two together and uh, came up with four. So it was really something, and most of that we learned from the children and grandchildren. So uh, Don Schmidt and I decided that, uh, hey, let's, let's write a book, because, the, number one, all of the... All of the people who were adults back in 47 who participated in this are, are gone now. And even some of the children are, are starting to go. Uh, so we said, Let, let's, uh, we have a lot of new information that hasn't been published about the children. So let's, let's focus on the children. Uh, there's a lot more character development of the children of what was going on at the time. Than uh, we had published in previous books because, like I said, our previous books were about uh, what, when, where, who, that sort of thing, and this is about the the who, but mostly about uh, how the event affected them growing up and in their and in their uh, private lives today. Hmm. So uh, that's what we focused on, and a lot of new material. And uh, I think uh, the readers will, will find it uh, very interesting. I mean, it's only the book has only been out two weeks, a uh, week or two, uh, no, no more than two weeks. But uh, the, we, the feedback is like, wow, yeah. this, this stuff is really, uh, I didn't know all of this stuff. Well, we'll give you a chance to talk about the book right after the break. But, but in the meantime, I'm just curious here. Uh, that it's funny that, that w- much of what you're saying was told to us by Jesse Marcel, Jr., uh, who was a young boy of what ten or something in 1947? Uh, uh, yes, he was eleven. Yeah, eleven. And uh, I, as a matter of fact, we're told this is the last show he ever did before he he passed, which was a, a privilege for us certainly. But uh, but yeah. in the sense, we never really got <laughs> to know him. But he said very largely what you just said, Tom. 
Now, let's get a little more specific so we can get a sort of a handle on this. Uh, I'm curious what exactly, I'm talking about the third group, the civilian witnesses. What precisely did they witness? And obviously it was not as a group. Nobody saw the crash as far as I'm aware. Uh, and then, well, 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 let's start with that. I'm curious how many people is it, are in that third group or were in that third group and what precisely they were being leaned on not to talk about. You know, I, I know it's in, in individual cases. I mean, well, uh, uh, the, the the first one that jumps to mind is a, a woman. Uh, she's in her mid eighties now. Uh, back in forty seven, she was twelve. Her name is Frankie Dwyer Rowe, and her father was a Roswell City fireman. He was a crew chief. And he had gotten out to the crash site uh, just at the time the military was getting there. And he saw all the wreckage, and uh, the most important thing is he saw two bodies, and he saw one that was still alive. So he was a, the uh, in, in the military mindset, he was a severe witness, mm. because he saw yeah, everything. And uh, Frankie herself, well, on that day, she was in the town of Roswell uh, to have a de- dental appointment. So after her dental appointment, she went to the firehouse to wait for her father to pick her up there and drive her home. So while, while she's waiting in the firehouse, in comes a California, uh, California, why would I say that? A New Mexico uh, highway patrolman named Robert Scroggins. And so Scroggins knew a lot of the lot of the uh, fellas at the uh, firehouse. So he comes in. He says, "Hey, fellas, I got something to show you." So he reaches into his pocket and he pulls out his clenched fist. They can't see what it is. So he says, "Now watch this." So he holds it over a table and he opens up his hand and unfurls thin piece of looks like aluminum foil and he says watch this so he 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 unfolds it and it it unfolds without a crease and it's just sort of floating there it's floating it slowly floats to the the table surface flat as a pancake you know and uh so the the uh one of the firemen says do that again do that so he picks it up wads it up does the same thing again and uh, let me have a look at that. So the the piece of metal, of the, we'll call it a piece of metal, it's passed around from uh, all of the firemen who were there at the time. And, of course, Frankie Rowe was there, so she had a crack at it, too. So she picked it up, did the same thing that the, the uh, highway patrolman had done. And her description was that when she, she uh, unfurled it, she said it, flowed like water that, that it had the consistency of water as it as it unfolded itself it flowed like water and on the top of the uh, the desk uh, the, the, the table there and it, it stuck with her for the rest of her life what it looked like so so she had uh, her father finally picks her up and takes her home so that evening when her father came back, from uh, he had been at the crash site that day, and uh, he told he told the family, "Oh, you know, I had a, I went up north of town and uh, saw 
saw some very strange things, and to cut to the chase, they started talking about the the live one, and they wanted to know, well, what did it look like? So he then he described what it looked like, three and a half to four feet tall with big head, blah, blah, blah. Well, well, did you talk to it, Dad? Did you talk to it? Well, yes, I did talk to it. We talked to one another, but we didn't talk like we're talking. We talked to one another in our heads, which we would call that today, I guess, mental telepathy. Well, what did it say? What did it say? Well, it was strange. He said, because uh, I w- he said I was concerned about it, but it, it was more concerned about me than than vice versa. And it told me, don't worry about me. Don't uh, concern yourself for me. I accept my fate. My comrades are dead. My ship is destroyed. And there's nothing anybody can do uh, about it. And so don't worry about me. I will, I will, you know, persevere. <laughs> Something like that. But uh, yeah. it was more concerned about Dan Dwyer than vice versa. Well, so, I call that a witness, severe or otherwise. I'm sorry? No, I say I, w- I would call that a severe witness for sure. Yes, a very severe witness. So the next day, uh, Dan Dwyer's at work, and Frankie Rowe is home with her mother. Now, this is the summertime, so she's not in school. So she's home with her mother. There's a knock on the door, and it's this tall, broad-shouldered Air Force officer wearing sunglasses and carrying a billy club. Pretty intimidating uh, character. So they open the door, and he says, "Is uh, is Frankie? Is your daughter?" The mother opens. Is your daughter Frankie here? And she goes, "Yes." Well, I'd like to speak with her. So <clears throat> in he steps, and two of his uh, thuggish NCOs follow him, and they take the mother into another room and close the door. And the officer, uh, we found out later, it was a fellow by the name of Arthur Philbin, takes uh, Frankie into the living room, and she he sits her down, and he stands over her, pounding the billy club in his hand, and he, he says, now, what did you see yesterday? And so she described what she saw and what her father did. And he says, well, that's... I that's hate all. to stop you when you're about to make the touchdown here, when the commercials, but we have to take a break. So, Tom, stick with us here. and I can't wait to continue this story. You're listening to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno on WOON 1240 in New England's beautiful Blackstone River Valley. We'll be right back with our fascinating guest, Tom Carey. Stick with us. Lou Mandeville here to tell you the only place to get your local high school and college scores, as well as the Pats, Bruins, Celtics, and Sox is on my morning sports reports. And they are right here on ON 1240, Monday through Friday on the Morning Fun Show. Well, that was nice and quick. Okay, we're back to Behind the Paranormal now with our tremendous guest, Tom Carey, um, author of the new, co-author of the new book, The Children of Roswell, and we're talking about that 1947 incident and what happened uh, to the witnesses to very strange uh, occurrences uh, related to this, what is believed to be a UFO crash, 1947, as we said. So please pick up uh, where you left off. Uh, Frankie Rowe is facing this. Op- now, this was a commissioned Air Force officer. 
Yes, he was a first lieutenant in 1947. Okay. He was a former, he was a former New, uh, Brooklyn, uh, New York uh, uh, detective or police officer. I'm not sure which, but right. he was from the police department in Brooklyn. And he was actually the uh, town liaison from the base to the town of Roswell whenever there was going to be an event that involved the military from the base in Roswell. He would be the liaison to sort of set it up and arrange for security and stuff like that. But uh, to get back to the story, so he's uh, standing over uh, Frankie Rowe, Frankie Dwyer at that time, trying to convince her that what she saw and what her father told her did not happen. And uh, he would, every time he would do it, he would bang that, that club in his hand. Now, don't you understand that what this did not happen? So finally, he, he, when he when you reach the end of it and he still feels that she does not understand, he resorts to the ultimate threat. He says, okay, Frankie, here's what's going to happen. If you don't stop talking about this or if we hear that you've been talking about this, we're going to take you and the rest of your family out into the desert. It's a big desert out there. They will never find your bones. So the threat was clear, and uh, Frankie, of course, uh, is 12 years old. What a, you know? What is she to think? So uh, the family remained silent for four years, and uh, we know that uh, Frankie's still alive. I know her well, and we meet with her every every July when we're down in Roswell. And uh, she would, for years, she was still shaken up by this story. Her her eyes would tear up whenever we talked about it and recently there there's a good there's a happy ending to this story well, that would it's be in nice the book. i don't i don't know if i should reveal it but it has to do with the son of the officer who intimidated frankie so long ago she had a uh, meeting with the the son of officer arthur philbin and there's a happy ending to this story, and Frankie was finally able to let it go because it had haunted her her entire life. This run-in and what would happen to her family if she had talked. Uh, one other thing uh, that's in the book uh, that's also new is the. Uh, it turns out Frankie Rose telephone had been tapped for years, and she didn't know it until something. Uh, out of the ordinary happened, an accident happened, and uh, she found out that her phone had been being tapped. So uh, the tap was removed, and the uh, uh, the uh, meeting with the, the son of Arthur Philbin, she's finally let that go, and she is very, uh, she's in her mid-80s now, but I've never seen her looking better. Well, that that's good. Now, Tom, a million other questions, but before we burn up the hour, tell us about your books, website, where people can find out more, etc. Yes, uh, uh, The Children of Roswell is our fourth book about the Roswell incident that we've written. It's the latest. It's only a week or two old. Uh, our website is www.roswellinvestigator.com. That's all one word, www.roswellinvestigator.com. The book can be obtained, of course, at Amazon, which is very popular these days. I use it myself. 
uh, Amazon.com. Also, you can get it at Barnes & Noble, which is our hard uh, copy distributor for all of our books. And uh, I'm sure that Amazon, if I myself, I like the uh, I like to read a, a real hard a book that you can ha- hold in your lap, you know. Right. right. Uh, Most people our age do. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, uh, but you can also get it on Amazon at uh, in um, Kindle. What do they call it? Kindle. Right. Kindle or ebook or whatever else they call those things. And I'm not disparaging them, except that I just uh, I'm an old timer. I like. I like to turn a page that right, right. that actually turns. So that's where you can get it. Excellent. Okay, very good. Uh, now, Tom, just to continue with uh, with our line of thought here. Okay, that, that, those are really chilling stories about what happened to some of these witnesses. How, how many people did this happen to? How many people are in this third group? Uh, and, and you know, and how many people uh, did this um, these terrible uh, threats uh, target? You know. They uh, they consisted of people in Roswell, and I'm I'm guessing that uh, we've only spoken to you know, the tip of the iceberg because uh, Roswell was a town of twenty five thousand back in 1947. That's excluding the military, uh, and also you have the surrounding ranchers north and northwest of Roswell. That's uh, just a large population and. A lot of them got around to the. They've got. They got to the crash site, and the ones that didn't, they heard the story. So we're talking about ultimately scores of uh, first and second-hand witnesses of of whom we've only scratched the the surface. And I would guess I'd have to. I'd have to actually sit down and count them up uh, how many there are. But uh, whenever we talk to the, the children and grandchildren, they always tell us stories of the threats yeah and, uh, so now, it's the the, the 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 number is quite significant okay now on the flip side you seem to know a lot about this lieutenant is it philbin you said yes and uh you know his son have you ever talked to him oh philbin uh, we we uh, early on we said okay we have to find this guy and uh we had deduced from various uh, statements uh, from the from military guys, that it was a fellow by the name of Arthur Philbin. So what we did is that we have a copy of the 1947 Roswell Base Yearbook. It's got all the pictures of all of the the airmen, and uh, the, the the there were there was a few nurses as well that worked in the base hospital, but most of them were male airmen. So we copied the page from the book that had 16, I'm sorry, 17 officers' photos on it from the unit that Philbin was in, and Philbin's picture was there. So we did like a police lineup with Frankie Rowe. We sent her a copy of that uh, page with all the pictures, and we said, do you recognize anybody on this page as the officer who you had the run-in with back in 1947. Now, Don Schmidt lives in Wisconsin. I live in Pennsylvania. Your co-author. So, yeah. so we did not influence Frankie at all on this. So a few weeks went by, and I received a, a, a letter. I almost said email, but this was before I had email. <laughs> okay. uh, I received a letter in the mail from Frankie addressed to me. So I opened it, 
and all it was was the page from the book that I had sent her. And on the page was a circle around the picture of Arthur Philbin. That was it, a circle around the page of Arthur Philbin. So we were right. So at that point, we set out to find him, and we went to the New York, or I can't recall now whether it was Brooklyn Police Force or the New York City Police. Yeah, the but, New York City Police Force it would be, yeah. Yes, and we, we asked them about Arthur Philbin. Of course, the we're talking now back in the 40s, and, and we thought, well, geez, he would have gone back there to after he got out of the Air Force to resume his career. Well, apparently he didn't, but the, the information we got from them was that, oh, he... He died, or he died uh, an alcoholic uh, and penniless. And so we said, oh, my goodness, well, they must know. You know, that's the New York City Police Department. So we sort of closed the book on trying to find him after that. When they said he was dead, he died an alcoholic, blah, 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 blah. So it turns out, and we learned this from his son, that he didn't go back to New York at all, that he retired from the Air Force to Nebraska a town in Nebraska. Hmm. He was a devout Catholic. He didn't drink at all. And he died. He did die young in his 50s. But uh, uh, he was not any of the things that the, the, the New York police said he was. So we never did get to interview him uh, himself. Okay. Because we didn't, know where he, we didn't know where he was. But his son... And it's an interesting story, and it's in the book. i got to leave something for the book. Sure, uh, sure. We did learn these things from the sun. Okay. Did you talk to any other people from that side of the, uh, of, of, the, of the coin, the people who were doing the harassing? Or we at least found out uh, their identities. Well, Arthur, uh, Arthur Philbin was the, uh, the main cog in the uh, harassment of the uh, local Roswellians, as was the sheriff of Chavez County, and that's, that's a nice segue into the sheriff, his role. The sheriff, George Wilcox, he died in 1961, before any of us ever heard of Roswell. Hmm. So we never did get to interview him, but we did interview his two daughters, his two living daughters at the time, they're now dead, and his grandchildren. And we learned the most from his grandchildren. A granddaughter named uh, Barbara Duggar, and a grandson named George Wilcox Jr. And George George uh, Wilcox Jr. was ne has never been interviewed prior to my interviewing him for this book. And it turns out that he spent a summer. He was going to a uh, local local uh, military institute in Roswell, and he spent a lot of time with his uncle. George, of the, his namesake, Uncle George, and uh, he told us that it was clear to him. Now, this had, this is before 1961 now. This is so uh, uh, George uh, Jr. is a teenager. He said it was obvious to him that his grandfather was paranoid at this point. He was paranoid because every time... An automobile outside would go by. He would jump up and run over to the window as if he was scared that somebody was after him. And he said, "Oh my goodness, I, I what's matter? What's the matter with Uncle? You know, with the grandfather here?" 
and uh, but he revealed a lot of other things about the sheriff that's in the book and uh, the first thing we learned about the sheriff from his own daughter Phyllis was that we said well what uh, how did the uh, you know how did the uh, Roswell incident affect your father and she says it destroyed him it destroyed him I like, oh my goodness how could that destroy him? I mean, he was the sheriff. He was used to dealing with the thing, you know, emergencies and things like that. You know, he's seen a lot. How could something like that destroy him? Especially when it was the Air Force that uh, did all the recovery and uh, everything like that. And uh, she says, "Well, uh, she didn't want to go into it, but uh, I'll just tell you that it destroyed him." So it was then that his granddaughter, Barbara Duggar, we learned the most about what happened to George Wilcox from the granddaughter, Barbara Duggar. And she spent a, uh, the uh, part of the summer, this would be July of 1969, the year of the moon landing, with uh, her grandmother, uh, George Wilcox's wife, Inez. Now, George is already dead. Inez uh, still had a few years left. And the day of the moon landing, uh, Barbara Duggar and her grandmother, Inez, they're watching the moon landing on TV. And Inez asks Barbara, Barbara, do you believe in life out there? And she says, well, you you know I do. Well, I mean, why are, why are, why would you be asking? So at that point... Inez gets up from her chair, she goes over to the window, closes the window, draws the blinds, goes to the door, locks the door, and now, you know, they're sitting in the living room of their home, and she sits back down, and she looks around to make sure that there's nobody else there. And in a low voice, she, she says, well, you know, back in 1947, there was a crash of a flying saucer or a spaceship. You know, and at this point, Barbara is thinking, "Oh my goodness, what is what is what is she telling me here?" But the, it was the moon landing that triggered all this, and mm. we had other cases where the moon landing had uh, had a cathartic effect on witnesses who had kept it kept the secret. But seeing the moon landing, they opened up. But in this case, that's what happened because Inez says, "Well, there was a crash of a flying saucer, and the Air Force came around to us." and threatened us to keep quiet about what we knew because your grandfather, George, had helped helped out the Air Force in silencing witnesses. And they came to us and they, they silenced us as well by threatening to kill us and our entire family if we said anything about it. And uh, so Barbara says, well, did you believe him? And she says, well, what do you think? Which was obviously yes. So we got a lot of information from Barbara, the granddaughter, and the, the grandson, George, who'd never been interviewed before. And uh, it's very interesting. George George uh, never ran for office, uh, ran for sheriff again. Never ran for sheriff again, but his wife, Inez, did in his place because she wanted to... She wanted it her own way to show the Air Force and the government that they couldn't do this to people. That was her way of yeah. sort of striking back. You can't do this to us, and I'll show you. I'll run for sheriff myself. It turns out she lost uh, by a razor-thin uh, amount, 
and the uh, the uh, opposition, the the the, the 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 person who ran and won, they used the smear tactics against the Wilcox family like you're all crazy because of that UFO thing. The uh, so they smeared them over the UFO thing. So okay. So but there's a lot more, it, it, a lot more stuff about the the Wilcox family. The, he, he, George Senior said that it was the biggest mistake he ever made in his life. He should have contacted the media first and not the Air Force. He because he contacted the Air Force first and they got out there and covered everything up. He said if they he only contacted the media first, maybe they could have gotten out there and gotten the. Let me ask you this, Tom, because we're running out of time. Uh, how long did this harassment continue? I mean, <clears throat> in the say the for say the Wilcoxes or anybody else, uh, is it still going on? I mean, and I as mean, long as it took. As long as that's it took. a good question. Uh, we we heard from an insider. Oh, this is in the night, uh, late 1990s. Uh, an insider. Well, we said, well, what's their plan? What is their plan? Because now this was like the 1990s. He says their plan is to run out the clock. To use a sport analogy, to run out the clock and and uh, just let everybody die. Because they, for years, they would they would follow up with the certain witnesses that they felt needed special attention. And this went on for decades. But at this point, the the, the clock is pretty near run out on the actual first-hand witnesses because everything else is second or third hand so yeah. it went on for decades but uh as the fellow said the their plan eventually was to let the clock run out and that's where we are right now well who was behind this as far as you've been able to learn i mean the, the cia some somebody else i mean some shadow guy i mean there are all kinds of theories i mean the air force I well mean, initially initially we believe that the it was the military who convinced President Truman to take a cover-up approach. Until we find out what this is, well, let's cover it up because we don't want the the Soviet Union to get the to get any uh, to learn any secrets of this, especially the technology. Because sure, what uh, one of the early participants, a major, a major Patrick Saunders on the base, the Roswell base. His daughter was able to get the, the the statement from him before he passed away. Dad, Dad, why why do we cover this up? Why do we cover this up? And he says, uh, you know, whatever, you know, I whatever, you know. I guess he says, well, sweetheart, that's what dads often call their daughters, sweetheart, or something like that. To, uh, you know, term of affection. We were faced with a technology far greater than our own, and we didn't know what their intentions were. That was the philosophy behind the cover-up, at least according to this Patrick Saunders, who was involved in the cover-up on the base, as to why the cover-up. And that's a good, you know, if, if you have technology you want, you want to exploit and you don't want your enemies to exploit it, you, you don't let them know about it. Sure. So that's one of the reasons for the cover-up. Uh Military inspired. Now, who is doing it today? I think it's more or less a uh, an, uh, a, a law. The law of inertia has kicked in. That it it it's always been covered up, 
So let's 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 not rock the boat. Let's just uh, keep it covered up. Uh, don't create any waves. Just let it uh, play out. So who is doing it today? I couldn't tell you. My guess is it's still at a military, uh, a, a political military type uh, uh, state of stasis, as they call it. It's it's not going one way or the other. It's just going along as it's always going along. And there's no. Nobody asking about it because you want to keep your job, you want to get uh, promoted to the next grade, and asking about Roswell is not going to get you that promotion or the next uh, job. No, so. quite true. Now, you and I grew up, to, I, I assume we're pretty much the same vintage here. Uh, we grew up during the Cold War. Uh, we're both veterans, and, uh, you know, we just, um, I sometimes shake my head. People today just don't know what it was like. During the Cold War, you know, the, the perceptions, the fears, you know, hiding under yes. desks and all this sort of thing. And uh, it's a different world today. And yep. uh, people might not understand that. But uh, I don't know, maybe then you. Well, I mean, there's, I guess, I guess it's, it's more different fears today than there were back then. Yeah. At least but there, I, I at least there was, a, like, understandable. I no, think, no, definitely. You know. I, def- I definitely agree with it. I, I just, yeah. I, I think the perception of threats has changed over the years. Now, in our last few minutes here, Tom, uh, what, uh, what do you think, and this is sheer speculation, of course, what do you think would be the reaction today if something crashed in a similar way, you know, within, you know, uh, 7,500 miles? I would miles think the reaction away? would be hallelujah. Uh, maybe. <laughs> hallelujah well, as, as we often say, we, we, we grew up <laughs> with the uh, the Klingons and all these other, you know, and the sort of uh, E.T. and this, and I think people would be, um, would be quite uh, pleased I don't think they would, society cer- would, they would certainly not. They would certainly not be uh, as uh, I, the reaction would be different than 1947 because yeah. we've had so much uh, uh, theater, whether it's movies, uh, radio, TV, uh, with alien uh, uh, concepts, yes. and uh, I, everybody accepts that there's uh, statistically there's. It's a certainty. There's other intelligent life in the universe. Everybody accepts that, I believe. Well, there's also the issue of uh, are they really from, quote, other planets, or, you know, get into the idea of parallel worlds and this whole thing. Obviously, things we don't have time to to discuss today, perhaps for another show. And I must say that uh, Ben and I will be speaking in the Philadelphia area at the behest of, uh, I'm sure you you know, Jennifer Stein. uh, Oh, yes. MUFON event in October, so we hope to meet you there. When is it, October? Uh, yeah, it's the monthly meeting of the Philadelphia Area MUFON, I believe. Oh, okay, yes, yeah. yes. I know Jennifer and a uh, uh, good friend of mine. I spoke at her events. And, uh, yes, uh, uh, but but to answer your question, it would there would not be a panic in the streets like uh, right. the old Orson War, uh, Wells War of the World. It would not be that. Most people uh, that you talk to uh, accept uh, the, the notion of intelligent life in the universe. Some say, oh, well, it's uh, it's our future coming back to us. But I don't get into that. Uh, I'm just looking at it uh, from the astronomer's point of view uh, and the astrophysicist that, uh, you know, there's so many stars with planets out there that there's statistically there's got to be other life. But sure. uh uh, the reaction would be, certainly the government reaction would be, well, I won't use a word I can't use, but oh, blank. Yeah. Uh, 
we're we're in for it now. <laughs> okay. Well, very good, Tom. But, just very quickly, one more time, your website and your book, and uh, we'll have to bid you adieu. Yes, our website is www.roswellinvestigator.com. Our book is the uh, the latest book is the Children of Roswell. Published came out a week or two ago. It's our fourth book in the Roswell series, and we believe we have one more. Uh, in, in us for next year, which will be the 70th anniversary of the event. Yeah, seven zero of uh, since 1947. Next year, but, outstanding. Uh, uh, we've had good reaction to our new book, uh, uh, focusing on the children and grandchildren and what what has transpired in their lives. And uh, we're Excellent. we're just uh, pleased as punch, as somebody would say. Very good. Well, Tom, thank you for a great conversation. We'll Indeed. be in touch off the air. Tom Carey, everybody. Check it out. Thanks, Tom. Thank you. Okay. Alrighty, so on April 8th and 9th, we will once again speak at the New England Parafest at the Ashworth-by-the-Sea in Hampton Beach, New Hampshire. And we are the final speakers of the event, and they have our subject listed as the truth behind the paranormal. But we'll uh, be talking a great deal about parasites as well. And then on uh, July 23rd, we'll be at the Connecticut, I guess they've changed the name to the Gathering of the Paranormal in Windsor Locks. We will present on Saturday, and on Sunday we will host the weekly edition of this show with a panel of all the speakers before a live audience. This event will benefit the Queen of Hearts thoroughbred horse, that is, retirement farm in Maine. We will also be painting all the roses red. Uh, in the fall, we will be huh, speaking at okay. a Muf- MUFON event uh, in Philadelphia, as we mentioned, at the Exeter UFO Festival. Uh, we will be speaking at uh, in Exeter, New Hampshire. Of course, that's September 3rd and 4th, and at the Great- Greater New England UFO Conference in Lemonster, Massachusetts, in October. Meanwhile, you can find out more about the show, our public appearances, and more at BehindTheParanormal.com. That, was one of, that is one of the uh, top websites for use and visits. And also at our also at our website, you'll find 650 free recording shows or recordings of our shows, and uh, that's from both ON 1240 and our four and a half year run on CBS Radio, along with special shows and podcasts. You'll love this time change, eh, Ben? Yeah, I know. Yeah, we both we both love the clock change. Good heavens! Yeah, I know. Anyway, this fall you can start looking for our forthcoming book, originally titled Cosmic Journey. Now it's behind the paranormal. Everything you know is wrong. Coming from Schiffer Publishing, uh, we'll let you know the release date when we have it, and there will be a release event of some kind. I'm not sure what that is yet, and we'll let you know about that. All the rest of my books are available on Amazon.com, Amazon Kindle, Barnes & Noble, The Usual Suspects. Uh, but if you buy them directly online at BehindTheParanormal.com, our show site, be very happy to sign them for you, and you will help us keep all those recorded shows free on that site. So, let's see. The charities? Yes, our yes. charities. Yes. Uh, we certainly have um, several charities we have adopted, including USA Cares, that's all usacares.org, Canadian Veterans Advocacy, Youth Mentoring Connection uh, in Los Angeles, doing great things out there for at-risk youth, that's youthmentoring.org, and helpforhaiti.com. They're doing great things uh, for the folks in Haiti who are still recovering from the, the earthquake there that took place in 2010. So mm. uh, we, we know some folks who work in that personally. It's a great charity. And let's see, we have um, uh, next Sunday's show, Bed. What do we got next Sunday? Next Sunday, we have uh, an open lion show with our never-ending uh, st- stream of emails and piling up, more turning into a mountain than a hill. We'll never catch up. Yeah, we'll never catch up on them, but we'll do our best to try uh, answering questions from listeners on all sorts of paranormal subjects. And we leave you this afternoon with a thought from Indian-American mystic Deepak Chopra. 
The physical world, including our bodies, is a response of the observer. We create our bodies as we create the experience of our world. You know, put that in your pipe and smoke it. I'm Paul Eno. And I'm Ben Eno. And thanks for joining us on our great cosmic journey. And we shall see you next time. Return to this radio frequency 167 hours from now for another edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno.